Uh, Revelation chapter uh, 2 is where we're studying, as you know. And uh, just to review, I don't, I can't remember who's been here or who's not been here of late, but um, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, uh, the importance of that is here you see the Lord Jesus, the head of the church, the Lord of the church, evaluating his church. And the evaluation centers on the seven churches in Asia, the ACRs, the seven important um, first century churches. I think, and this is how I'm teaching it, this is Christ's evaluation of the church, and I'm trying to turn it into a positive in this sense. This is what the revived church looks like. This is what the church that Jesus um, wants to see looks like. This is the church with the qualities and characteristics and temperaments that are pleasing to him. So if we look at it from that perspective, what we come up with is seven characteristics of the church. And so some of them are stated, that is, the evaluations of these Asian churches. Some of them are stated negatively, where Christ is condemning them. In others, he is extremely positive, like the church at Philadelphia, for example. But what I do in this series, and that's how I'm teaching it, is we want to turn even the negative criticism, okay, then the opposite would be that which is approving to the Lord. And I think we can get a picture of, a, I think, a very helpful picture of what the revived, renewed church looks like. I have preached it that way in revival meetings and things like that over the years. So I hope it'll be helpful. That's how we're trying to look at it through this passage. The first church, and just again real quickly because we already have covered this, is Ephesus. That's, and remember geographically, you have your map. You know that is, the, that is the key church in Asia, Asia, the Roman province of Asia. It's the gateway to the rest of Asia. And uh, the Lord has incredibly positive things to say about it. However, they've lost their first love. And that, of course, is the, the love for Jesus. They're busy, they're active. They're diligent, but they've fallen out of love with Jesus. It's that intimacy, that fellowship with Jesus. And so he, he, he wants them restored to that. So verse 5, he gives them the instruction. In verse 7, I don't re- remember that we got to verse 7 um, in its completeness, and I, I want to make sure we do that. So Jesus then says, as he concludes his thoughts about Ephesus, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, to me, that is an instructive sentence because that enables us to apply this to all churches through all ages at all time. This is the Spirit of God through Jesus speaking to the churches. You follow me? That language is important. And then he adds, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now let's work back. The tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, we will read about that in Revelation 21 and 22. So this is, this is the eternal state. So what does he mean by to him who overcomes? The word overcome, and this is really, really important. This isn't about earning or meriting your salvation. This is the person who's, this is the goal 
in spiritual warfare. This is the goal in the spiritual life, to overcome the struggle with sin. And you do that by the centrality of your love affair with Jesus, your focus on Jesus, your fellowship with Jesus, and independence on the Spirit. 1 John chapter 4 uses it that way. John, uh, excuse me, Jesus in the Gospel of John uses it that way. Overcome in sense, overcome in the struggle with sin. <clears throat> and so it's, a, um, it's not some super spiritual group. It's all Christians. 1 John chapter 5, verse 5, in Christ, through the power of the Spirit, we have the capacity to overcome the struggle with sin. And it's just a statement of fact. They have the promise of eternal life. Believers overcome the power of sin positionally because of our, our, our faith in Christ and throughout our lives as we increasingly depend more and more on the Spirit and, uh, and uh, the power that is available because of that. And so it's just a simple review of the promise that God offers it. Okay? Any questions or... I uh, wanted to get to that last week, but we just ran out of time, so we didn't quite finish. Yeah, just, I just want to confirm they're not referring to Jesus when they say to no. him who overcomes. No, it's, no. It's to, the, to, to, the, to the believer. To the, okay. Yep. You've mentioned in churches <clears throat> today we have uh, churches that are lukewarm and that have the outward appearance of church and that they have a building and, and people go to church uh, you reference twenty percent of the American today Americans go to church as opposed to eighty percent in the fifties. So that's atrophying. Is part of that because that when people come to the church, they don't see and experience the love of Christ by those who are in the church because they have uh, lost their first love of Christ. Is that? I mean, could that be an explanation? And, could you kind of em embellish what's happening today in, in the churches of America? That's a really huge question there, Fred. But uh, I, I think you're on to something there. Uh, I'm trying to think how deeply I want to respond to this. Genuine biblical Christianity is a relationship with the living God through Christ. Genuine biblical Christianity is not a building. It's not busy activity doing lots of things. It's not um, the stature of your church. It is a living, personal, pulsating relationship with God through Christ. And that is that nature of that relationship is motivated and energized by love for him our obedience flows from that love for him our activity in the local church whatever that might be is motivated by love for him for him and our desire to share others share with others the message of the gospel is out of our love for him so that's the that's why this is so important in ephesus they were doing everything you'd like to see a church doing they're busy, they're hard at work, they know the truth, but they're just, it's, it's just they're going through the motions. They're busy in activity and they equate activity with the relationship. And it's, the, it's that cart before the horse idea. 
That's why you can have you can have people very, very busy and doing all kinds of things, and they really have no relationship with Jesus at all. Kind of like the Martha Mary. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's and it's and the thing, then the, the the natural thing. Well, then we don't do anything. No, no, that's not it. But it's it's that cart before the horse. The cart is our relationship. Uh, the horse is our relationship with Jesus. Our love relationship with Him. And what Jesus said, I think we, I think we mentioned that last, or one of you mentioned that last week. I think you went to to Matthew chapter seven, and Jesus says there, many of you in the day of judgment are going to say to me, "Look at all I did for you. You know, I did miracles, I cast out demons in your name." And Jesus is going to say, "Depart from me, I never knew you." And the word "no" there is "gnosko." It's that personal, intimate relationship with Him. I never knew you, so. It's, it's the love relationship with Jesus that defines biblical Christianity. It's not the busyness of our activities. It's not the size of our churches. It, I mean, all of those things can be important depending on the nature of the ministry, but it starts with the love relationship with Jesus. That's why the renewed, revived, energized church is in love with Jesus. Now, if that's missing... Um, to an extent, then all we do is we just go through the motions. And it that that's not what the Lord is looking for. You know, as I've you've heard me say this before, the 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 God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, who love each other and have communion with each other for all eternity. They created they created the physical world and they created human beings as image bearers to share that love and communion. And that is why God's done this. That's why First John 4, 4 well, twice actually it says in that chapter, God is love. That, that defines who he is. And that is to define our relationship with him. And, and that's why Ephesus is so characteristic of many churches today. Busy people with lots of activity, but there's just no love for Jesus there. So in our churches today, if we are, uh, if we have this love affair going, we're going to show that to people who come mm-hmm. into the church, mm-hmm. and they're going to see it as genuine and mm-hmm. not just a function mm-hmm. uh, that's on a job description somewhere. <laughs> but it comes from the person's heart, and they truly love that seeing that person there, and, and they feel that genuine love. I think. People seem to be pretty discerning whether something's genuine Absolutely. or not. Absolutely. And, and if it's there, they're going to feel it. You don't have to worry about what Absolutely. you say or do. I mean, don't you think? And Absolutely. And really, just think of the, the words of Jesus. You know, when he was asked what commandment is the greatest one, he didn't fall into that trap, that debate that was going on then. He just said it's simple. You love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbors yourself. The vertical affects the horizontal and uh, that's not that's not original thought with me what i just said <laughs> i've heard that many times but that the, the that's the point and in ephesus they were extremely busy active people that they'd fallen out of love with jesus you know to maybe put it uh, put it very simply are we are we ignoring a problem that i think was there back then don't know but because they're, you know, they have pagans all around, right? They have yes, totally, totally. And that culture was fighting. Totally. Do we not have the same fighting culture? I mean, I just finished Bonhoeffer, and oh. I, I understood what he 
tried to do. The biography of him or his, his work? Uh, I read a little bit of both. Okay. I read, I read Metaxas. Oh, Metaxas is a great biography of him. That's and, really good. And I read um, uh, The Cost of Discipleship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're the two that really. Um, he was fighting the German mm-hmm. effort to convert the Christian church into uh, Hitler's support. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Are we not fighting a similar battle here? And, and is, is the love of what is what you describe sufficient? Do we have responsibility? Well, that, it, it, that's why we have six more to go yet. Right. <laughs> that's, that's the first. But there are six more elements of what the renewed, revived church looks like. So, But yet, that's I think it's instructive that this is the first one. I think it's instructive that this is the beginning of it. And uh, so, no, there are more. That's We can get through. When we're all done, then we'll evaluate it. But you're right. I mean, Bonhoeffer, in many ways, and this, too, is not original with me, in many ways, the 21st century church in America resembles the first century church in the Greco-Roman world. There is a very significant parallel. And in a sense, that's helpful for us because that means we can learn from the New Testament Material because it's addressed to the New Testament church, how, and this is one of the values of doing what we're doing, to learn from how did they deal in a culture where you are no longer, and that is very much true in, in the United States, where evangelical Christians are no longer setting the agenda for the culture. We did for a long time. We really did. Evangelical Christianity set the agenda for culture. We don't any longer. We are thoroughly and totally countercultural. The culture is going one way, we are going the other way. I mean, there's, there's just no other way to distill it down to a simple model. That's exactly the model we're in, and that's the way the first century church was. They were small, they were in a pagan cesspool culture, and here's Paul and you know John and Hebrews and all those just saying, this is, this is the reality of the world. You're in the world, but you are not of the world. My concern is that and, the mainline churches today look a lot like the German church did in Bonhoeffer's day. It's a rather incendiary comment, but there <laughs> is, I think there is, there is, I mean, because, I mean, you don't necessarily want to equate the culture with Hitler's Nazi culture, but there is, I think the parallel is there is a complacency and a willingness to conform to whatever the cultural model is just to survive. Because that's what Hitler was saying. Conform to what I mean, or you're, you're going to wipe you out. You cannot exist as a church. And uh, that's what Bonhoeffer was, was fighting. It's not the same. Yeah, I mean, the, the, like all, all analogies always break down. But it's just as long as we can qualify that, there is that similarity. You know, complacency and conformity equals survival, not the New Testament. That's not the model of the New Testament church. Complacency and conformity equals survival. Because they were neither complacent nor did they conform. They were thoroughly countercultural and they were energized and passionate about the things that Christ was passionate about, not what the Caesar was passionate about. You follow what I'm saying? So And I want to make I just want to make sure if I I just want to really make sure you get this point of overcome. Turn back to first John chapter five, verse five. It's exactly the same word. I want you to make sure first John chapter five, not the gospel, but the letter, first John. Just a few pages to the left. First, uh, chapter 5, verse 5. Here's exactly the same word. 
Who is the one who overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. See, that's the definition of the overcomer. It isn't someone who, with all their energy and all their power, wins the struggle with sin. It's the person who has won the struggle with sin because of Jesus Christ. And they put their faith in him. The overcomer is the person who has put their faith in Christ and has overcome the power of sin in their lives. It's been broken. And Jesus is saying just the same thing. The overcomer is the one who gets eternal life, which is exactly what... I just want to make sure you don't misunderstand how the Lord is using the word overcomer there. And I think we got that done. All right, excellent questions and comments here. Yeah, Back to business and activity. Are we talking about internal business within the church? I mean, where... Where do the uh, church pantries and and the feeding pour mm-hmm. on Saturdays, you know, and stuff like that, is that part of the business and activity, or would you classify that a little different as as going out, you know? To well, I no, I um, I'm not sure all that you mean by that, but I think uh, my response would be this, John, and if 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 I'm not hitting what you want me to say, clarify it some more. I think one of the aspects and responsibilities of a local body is to care for those in need. Mm-hmm. I mean, James says that in, in his epistle two times. So, but it's, why do we do it? Because in addition to giving, you know, um, having a food pantry or a clothing bank or something like that in your church or being involved in something like that, we're not only doing that. We are also presenting the the gospel of Jesus Christ, because if all we do is have a food bank, men, there are dozens of food banks. We don't need to set up another food bank if that's all we're going to do. It's we we help meet physical needs, and I mean this. I'm sure you know. If you just study the history of Christianity, Christianity historically over the last two thousand years has done more to meet human need than any other worldview built more hospitals, more clinics, more educational institutions. But it's not only that which they're doing. They are also sharing the gospel of Christ. It's both and. That's what James says, too, in the same epistle in chapter 2. We are to do that, but the holistic approach is meeting the physical need and the spiritual need. If all you meet is the physical need, you haven't solved the problem. But it doesn't mean you ignore the spiritual, uh, excuse me, the physical need. And it's that balance. And, and uh, so anyway, as far as Gump said, that's all I have to say about that. So I think we're ready. Church number two, which begins in verse eight of chapter one. If you're following in your notes, it's page nine. It's the suffering church. So again, I'm trying to turn everything into a positive one key thought. So the revived, renewed, energized church is a church that's in love with Jesus. Secondly, it's a church that's willing to suffer. Well, here's an uncomfortable thought, isn't it? But in the 21st century, it has a lot of relevance. Now, I want to read the whole thing, and then we'll go back and take it apart. It's short. To the, church, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, parenthesis, but you are rich, 
and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who ever overcomes, same word as we saw in verse 7, <coughs> shall not be hurt by the second death. All right, Smyrna was um, an incredibly sophisticated city. If you go to your map, it's basically due north of Ephesus, quite a bit. And it was, it was a very cosmopolitan, rich city. It had the greatest stadium and theater in Asia. Did you ever hear Homer? I don't mean baseball. Homer, the poet, he was born and came from Smyrna. But it was an incredibly pagan city filled with pagan temples, including the worship of Caesar. So you have a group of Christians, a small church there. How are they going to fit into that culture? They're not going to fit, and they're persecuted. And so Jesus is looking at this church in Smyrna, and he says in verse 9, by the way, please note, there's no condemnation of this church. Jesus has nothing negative to say about this church. He is affirming how they are responding to the trial, tribulation, persecution of the pagan, including the Caesar cults all around them. So he says, verse 9, I know your tribulation. We know both historically in extra-biblical literature, I'll tell you about one in just a minute, as well as what the, the New Testament tells us, this is one of the most persecuted churches in the Eastern Mediterranean. They were severely persecuted. And, and so tribulation can be translated persecution if you want. And he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. In other words, they had this, again, we know this was true. The, the empire had confiscated their property, both their personal property as well as land that they owned. So they, the poverty is a result of the persecution. Everything they had was taken away from them. But then Jesus has in parenthesis, but you are rich. What does he mean? rich spiritually. Mm -hmm. From the perspective of eternity, you're the people of Matthew 6.20. You have been laying up treasures in heaven, not on earth. So it's just a reminder, a little parenthesis, a parenthetical reminder, but you are rich spiritually. And then the third thing, and the blasphemy by those, and you could translate blasphemy because that may cause you to stumble, the slander, the slander that has been leveled at you by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. <clears throat> now, what does, that, what does that mean? There's, there are a couple of things going on here. This group, <clears throat> they're being persecuted by the Caesar cult. That's right. That's right. In conjunction... This is a label we'll give these. 
We had talked about that earlier in one of our previous studies in Colossians. But the Jews that he's referring to here, who say they are Jews, these are the Judaizers. Do you remember that word? We studied that earlier. These are the Judaizers. So they, they, are, they are connecting with the empire to put down the church, put down the Christians. Because the Judaizers are just saying, we don't want anything, with this, we don't anything to do with this story of Jesus. You must keep the law. You must keep the circumcision rites, all that kind of stuff. You might want to mix Jesus in a little bit, but th- so they're denying all the unique aspects, and, the, and they're joining with the empire. So they're being slandered by this group of people. But then you notice what Jesus says. They're really of the synagogue of Satan. Slash Caesar, or Caesar slash Satan. Yeah, well, this is, this is taking it, yeah, okay, yeah. That, but what are we, what's energizing and empowering all this is Satan. But it's, it's like a play on words. You see that? By Jews. But they're really of the synagogue of Satan. Not the synagogue of the true God, but the synagogue of Satan. So that is an incredible accusation. <laughs> you know what I mean? So what you see here is, uh, and I hope you follow that, what you see in verse 9 is a typical set of characteristics of severe persecution. You're being persecuted you lose all your property, and you're being slandered. You're physically suffering. You've lost all your property, and you are being accused and slandered with trumped-up charges that are not true. That is exactly the nature of systematic persecution. Was this church primarily made up of Jews? I don't think so. I don't think so. There were some but it's largely a Gentile, you know, non-Jewish uh, uh, population in the church itself. So, so would you call the natives Asians at that point? Yeah, 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 they, you know, yeah. It, but because, just because they live in the Roman province of Asia. I mean, that's when we say Asia today, you think of China. <laughs> and, I, you know, that's not what we should be thinking. We're in what is today Turkey. But yes, they would be of the Roman province of Asia. But it's it's... I just, I want you to, I hope you got that. I want you to see in verse 9, that is a typical three-part tribulation. This is what happens. When you are persecuted, it's physical suffering, you lose all your property, and you're slandered. Trumped-up charges are brought against you. Fresh remember, what does synagogue mean? Well, synagogue is, uh, it's just a meeting place, but it was, uh, and that's all it means, meeting place, but it was started during the intertestamental period. When the temple is gone, it became the meeting place for Jews. It was the teaching place. Today's synagogues still exist, of course, but it's a place where you're taught the law. It's not a place of, there aren't sacrifices that go on in a synagogue. Synagogue is just where you're taught the law. That's, the synagogue's a teaching place. Now, what does he say to them? What encouragement can he possibly give these dear people? Verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Oh my goodness. But who's saying this? The Lord of the church. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold the devil. Now I want you to notice In verse 9, you have one of the names of the evil one 
verse 10, you have another name of the evil one. Devil, devil as a title means the one who slanders. The one who slanders. Jim, you mentioned in your notes here, <clears throat> Christians were charged with incest, atheism, and cannibalism. Yes. Uh, okay, Woody, that's good. When, um, when we get to that idea of slander or blasphemy, what were the charges being brought against Christians in the first century? So, and Woody's correct, I, I refer to that in my notes. Incest. Why would they charge early Christians with incest? You know, you just don't know you know, but I know you know. It go, they go, they, Paul refers to this twice in his letters. You walk in the room, you greet each other with a holy kiss. You call each other brothers and sisters. You hug each other. The first century church was hugging. They were huggers. Huggers and kissers. And, and you know, that's a little maybe far-fetched. But they're, they're running around, holy kiss, hugging each other, and calling each other brothers and sisters. Ancestors. Why would they charge them with cannibalism? The, uh, Eating the body and drinking the blood of a human being. Communion. What about the atheism? I don't want, we have two now. We have one to go yet. Now be patient. Be patient. Well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to save the really provocative one. Because the atheist one is the hardest. But yet it isn't. Because what it's, what it's saying and what the charge was, you refuse to bow down to Caesar. You refuse to bow down to the Caesar cult, the Caesar's God, the divinity of Caesar. And by definition, from the Roman Empire's perspective, you're an atheist. You're denying the prime deity of our empire, which is that our emperor is a god, an incarnate god, the incarnation of Jupiter, or in the Greek, the Zeus. That kind of, so you're an atheist. Well, not atheist, but atheist from the perspective of the Roman Empire. You won't bow down to our chief god. And so, and, and uh, thank you. I was going to do that at, at the end, but thank you, Woody, for doing that because that's what they was being slandered. That was the charge. That was, they were being slandered as atheists, as incestuous behavior and committing cannibalism. Now, as ridiculous and absurd as that sounds, within the context of the Greco-Roman world, that's not that absurd. When you have people <laughs> gathering together in a house church and partaking of communion... They go through a ritual and say, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat every time you remember to me. Drink. You know, I mean, if that's all you heard, this is really weird. There's a bunch of cannibals in there. They're meeting on Sunday and eating one another's bodies, which, of course, is not what's going on. But it's these, these are the slanderous charges brought against the Smyrna Church. And by the way, not only the Smyrna Church, that would broaden. This would be the... Uh, the charge against Christians throughout the Greco-Roman world for almost 100 years. A major apologist, his name was Athenagoras, you've never heard of him, but he wrote a major <laughs> book answering those three charges in the second century. And he sends it to the emperor and says, those charges are false, here's why. And you know, it was really interesting because one of the results was that that started to diminish. Those charges against Christians started to diminish. Because the church is standing up. This is what we believe. We're not committing incest. 
This is what we believe about the table. We're not committing cannibalism. And it was just interesting as they defended what they were doing. An atheist church sounds a lot like the, the, the uh, polytheist church we get from Muslims. Well, yeah, except it's polytheism. You're worshiping three gods instead of, of one. But, well, yeah. sure, it is yeah. false, but it's but, a similar deal. Yeah, yeah, no. right. It's a slanderous charge from uh, some in the Muslim community. And that is exactly uh, in the Dome of the Rock, right on the uh, Temple Mount in Jerusalem. That is exactly over the south door. That is exactly what it says for those who, who believe in God as Trinity. <clears throat> Uh, I kind of lost my place there. Oh, in verse 10, Behold, the devil's about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Now, two words there, tested, you will have tribulation 10 days. Now, tested, from whose perspective are they being tested? From God's perspective. What's being tested? Their faith. So God is saying, Jesus is saying to them, Satan is about the devil who's energizing all these false accusations and everything. You're going to end up in prison. And he's very specific. We have, it's hard, we, we do not have anything extra biblical to help us understand what the 10 days mean, except it must have been just prophetic. Some of you will be thrown into prison for 10 days. But be faithful. And faithful unto death. What does that mean? Some of you may be martyrs for the faith. But I will give you the crown of life. That We've seen that before. Crown of life is a metaphor for eternity. Eternal life. So just a metaphor. It's used in the New Testament for eternal life. So you see again, he has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, the same language you saw in verse 7, again, I refer you to 1 John 5, 5, shall not be hurt by the second death. That is, a, that is a phrase used in the book of Revelation. What's the second death? Eternal separation from God in hell. That's the second death. Death, by definition, always means separation. The second death is eternal separation from God. That's how it will be used in Revelation 20, as you'll see later on. So this, this, this little church at Smyrna, it was numerically small in a very large pagan city. Uh, Jesus has some really remarkable things to say about this little church. I want to tell you a story because um, I have my students read this in church history class. From this church at Smyrna was a man named Polycarp. Have you ever heard of Polycarp? Some of you may have. Um, it's, a great, it's a great story. Polycarp was the bishop, which that doesn't mean what bishop means today in the 21st century. He's just the leader of the church. He was the pastor of the church there at Smyrna. And the Roman, the Roman provincial officer was in Smyrna and just ordering Polycarp, shut up in your teaching about Jesus Christ. If you do not bow down to the Caesar, we are going to execute you. And he says, I'm 86 years old. And if I have stood against the Caesar cult this many years, 
your threat to me is not going to cause me to bow down to the Caesar call. Well, I'm going to burn you alive. And he says, I want to talk to you about the importance of eternal fire. I want to, and it, I mean, each time, instead of cowering in fear, and then he, he says, okay, do you see those animals over there? We're about, to, we're about to enter the game. I'm going to feed you to the animals. And he says, bring it on, whatever you want to do. Because the moment I take my last breath, I'm going to be with Jesus Christ. I mean, it's just on and on. His person, the people in his church recorded his trial, and it was reproduced. We have a copy of it. It's a tremendous testimony of a church leader, 86 years old, had walked with Christ all of his adult life, had been a key leader of this, this little church at Smyrna, standing up to the most powerful empire in the world. Say, bring it on. Whatever you want to do to me. I've served Jesus this many years. You are not going to force me to stop serving him. P-O-L-Y-C-A-R-P. If you Google it, and just just look look for the look for the testimony or the trial of, of Polycarp, and you can you can it's a great story. I mean, this is this was was recopied and circulated rather widely. It's a great it's it's a great example of what the Lord Jesus is talking about in his words of Smyrna, uh, of the church at Smyrna. He illustrated and represented that, and so. Um, you know, it, when, I, when I first started using this in, in meetings to, to help people think about what's a renewed church, to talk about the second cat, be willing to suffer. In North America, that, that doesn't resonate. If you're preaching in North Korea, that means something. If you're preaching in Iran, that means something. But North America, but you know, it's not as foreign as it used to be because there are people that are standing for Christ and are experiencing slander and are experiencing and not being executed, not being martyred, that may come in North America in the years to come. But for now, it isn't. So it's just, but you, it's not as foreign of an idea as it used to be. I heard on the news this morning that today was supposed to be the end of the world. What did Jesus say? Remember what Jesus said? No one knows. So when you hear something like that, yawn, smile, and sip your coffee. <laughs> yeah, right. Because I... Oh, <laughs> that was the sign. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, Christ is telling us, do not fear, and do not fear yeah. now, even like Polycarp. Yes. And he doesn't ask us to do something which we cannot achieve, would you say? I mean, right. he's saying, do not fear. Right. And so as we live our lives uh, as Christ and sharing our faith, uh, we do not fear uh, reprisal. We walk in the strength of, that the Lord and the Holy Spirit gives us to do that which he leads us to do. And, and we, we can do that, this is saying, without fear. That's right. I mean, and that's, you know, it's easy to say that, Fred, but it's, it, is, it is the truth. Faith, faith and fear don't go together. They really don't. And again, it is easy to say that in a comfortable room on a lovely fall day, but faith and fear don't go together. And the, uh, the person of faith 
It's a person, and, and think, think of the way that Jesus has put it here. Your real enemy, and this is Satan and the devil. Satan means adversary, devil means slanderer. And so he says, don't be afraid of him. Don't be afraid because you have overcome him through me. First John chapter 5. Who, who is the one who's overcome? Who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, and, and I, my wife and I were talking about that, and, and I thought about, we heard a story about that shooter in Oregon that he shot Christians only. Right. That was incorrect, apparently. But um, I told her, you know, it, it's easy <clears> to say, <throat> like you just said, that, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, but when you're faced with uh, somebody chopping off your head and shooting you in the <laughs> yeah. head, I pray that I have the courage yeah. to, yeah. to tell it. To say that I'm a Christian, you know, that's, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's easy to say right here. See? Yeah. But when you face with yeah. death, I don't know, you know, how yeah. many of us are going to yeah. do that. You know, I'm afraid that I have the courage to do that. Well, right, and it is the it is the instruction of Jesus in verse ten that Lord, I don't think I'd even be wrong to to just pray this. Lord, give me. Give me the faith and trust to you that I won't be afraid when something difficult like that comes. Yeah. I think most of us around the table, I mean, in our lives, I mean, I don't think I'll see it in my lifetime, but I've often thought, I used to never think it would be possible that you would see that in the United States of America, but I do, I do see it as a possibility where you will see Christians thrown into prison for their belief. In, in, in certain areas. I don't know, but execution, that's maybe extreme at least right now but I, I you know I used to think I'd never I'd never see that happen in the United States of America I don't know if I'll see it in my lifetime because I'm 68 now so but you know 10 years man I can't believe what's happened in the last 10 years from when I was 58 until where I'm now I can hardly believe it how the, the culture has accommodated the things that God speaks so clearly about in his word and it's just accommodating to it for you know, all the different reasons that cause that. Though, it's just, Lord, whatever it costs, I want to stand for truth. I want to stand for you. Give me the courage to do that. I just want to piggyback on this comment. Yeah. Last yeah. Because this is so current. Yes, it is. The first thing I heard was that if you love Jesus, you get it in your head. If you don't, you get it in your feet. Yeah, that's what I heard, too. Yeah. Then shortly after that, somebody else said, "Well, that no, that that wasn't that strong for Christians. It was it, it was towards religion as a whole. Is is that the devil trying to mold us <laughs> so that we refuse? I mean, yeah, I don't. I, I, mean, I, I just don't know. I mean, well, I've been for I've been a little concerned about how it's been reported because it has. It was so clear at first, and then the the, the longer we, we've gotten from the event, it seems to be almost watered down to the point where as if you're religious, I'll shoot you. I, the early reports weren't that general. They were pretty specific. So I don't know who is watering, why they're being watered down. And I, you know, I don't want to, I wasn't there, and none of us were there, so we, we don't exactly know. But there are, uh, I don't think there are any, uh, there's any reason why you couldn't envision someone like this man who apparently was mentally unstable still saying that. If you're a Christian, I'm going to shoot you in the head. <laughs> and that, they were the early report. It wasn't just one person saying that. If, if, I, if I heard that correctly, 
it was a number of people that, you know, in the rooms and some had even been wounded and so on, but survived, that were saying that this is what he was saying to these people. So, I don't know. But and that term Christian is so vague, though. I mean, you, you can, I can talk to half of my customers and they'd say they're Christian. <laughs> yeah, it's a very... Um, I don't want to say meaningless, but it's yeah. certainly a much more superficial term. Yeah. That's why if you listen to the way I often put it, I talk about genuine biblical Christianity. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I, because I didn't used to, I used to say Christian and everybody knew it. Now to say genuine biblical Christianity, <laughs> yeah. it's just qualifying it a little bit because uh, you do have an awful lot of people that, call themselves Christians, but uh, only the Lord knows their true state. But I am not sure they really embrace the faith. Now, Fred's body language, uh, you know, he closed his notes, closed his Bible, sitting there staring at me. He wants me to stop. So uh, I want to do two things real quickly. Next week, we go to the church at Pergamum, which begins with verse 12. And if you look at your notes, this is a negative, but I want to turn it into a positive. A church that stands for truth. T- take a look. Take a look at some of the language that Jesus uses about the church at Pergamum, and particularly, he starts the one who has a sharp, two-edged sword. That should cause you to think of a verse in Hebrews, where it says the word of God is like a sharp. Two-edged sword. So I just went, why would he introduce himself that way? And just look at some of the things he says about the church at Pergamum and and the, why I, turning it into a positive, why a renewed church is a church that stands for truth. So as we've been doing, we're probably only going to do one church a week at the rate we're going here, but that's all right. We have no timetable with this. So let's pray, all right? Father, we're grateful for our study this morning as we've spent about an hour around the word, and especially this uh, significant church at Smyrna, uh, a church that underwent incredible persecution, slanders, charges like atheism, cannibalism, incest, which are so false, but many were thrown in prison because of that. Some martyred, and the great hero of the early church, Polycarp, came from this church. And uh, we do not know anything about martyrdom in North America. North American church hasn't experienced that in any significant way. But um, there have been times of slanderous charge, and Lord, that sort of looks like it's happening again. Increasingly, it's costing people to stand for genuine biblical Christianity. And I rather suspect that's going to grow. We are men of faith, not of fear. We are men who trust you, um, do not doubt you. Grow Grow those convictions in our hearts. We want to be men who stand for you and stand for your truth. And we want that to be reflected in our homes, in uh, the impact we have on our children, grandchildren, as well as in the larger contacts we have with people. Lord, I uh, do thank you for um, John's new granddaughter. We pray for her uh, as uh, Lacey and Andrew are now adjusting to this tremendous gift from you. Uh, Our prayer would be that this dear little girl would grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and that at an early age you would put her faith and trust in Jesus. That would be our primary prayer for this new life. Give wisdom to Andrew and Lacey as they begin that process of parenthood, as they care for one another and care for her.
uh, we really commit them to you. It's a special, precious time in the life of a family, and it's a wonderful gift from your good hand. So as we go our separate ways now, Lord, uh, be with us, protect us, and help us in what we do and say to represent you well. In Christ's name, amen. amen. See you next week. Amen.